Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And we are discussing a novel in this episode. That novel would be Hickory Dickory Dock. Let's just get right into it because I know we both have a lot of thoughts about this one. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about the publication history? Yeah, it was first published in installments in John Bull in the UK, um, beginning in May of 1955. And then it was similarly published in installments in Collier's Weekly in the US in October of 1955. It was published in book form by Colton's Crime at the end of October of that same year, and then by Dodd Mead in the U.S. next month, so in November of 1955. Right, and of course, in the U.S., it was titled Hickory Dickory Death. You know, apparently Christie wrote this in the first months of 1955 uh, at Nimrud. That was where the archaeological dig was happening that uh, her husband, Sir Max Mallowan, went to every year. And I am happy to report that this is the last title of Agatha Christie's derived from a nursery rhyme. Apparently, Christy had at some point some alternate ideas like she had toyed around with using Hickory Dickory Dock as a title for a mystery novel for quite some time because she has some musings in her notebooks, which John Curran has made note of himself. In one, she was thinking about doing a story in which a character has a complex about the word dock, (laughs) that it would be like some sort of a terror story. And then also at another point, she had an idea where the first murder would happen happen at one o'clock and then the second at two o'clock and so on. But she ended up not pursuing any of those. I think this is the most useless of the nursery rhyme titles because it truly doesn't inform the mystery whatsoever. The Well, so it's it's Hickory Dickory Dock. The mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one. The mouse ran down Hickory Dickory Dock. Indeed. And the setting of this tale is on Hickory Road. Apparently, as originally written, that was Gillespie Road. So I guess Christy just shoehorned Hickory Road into that for purposes of the title. But she's not doing what she did in And Then There Were None on many different levels. But in terms of integrating the <laughs> nursery rhyme into the story, um, you know, this is even less integrated than One to Buckle My Shoe. So that's the territory we're in. And then I thought this was interesting. The royalties for this title were actually put into a trust for Christie's nephews via Max Mallowan. These were two boys, John and Peter Mallowan. And uh, the reason for that is that this is the point at which Christie was trying to give stuff away to figure out her tax situation and keep her tax payments from just totally overwhelming her. So she, for various reasons, would give away some of her titles or give the proceeds to various entities or people. So I just thought that was interesting that uh, some Malouin nephews were the recipients of, I'm sure, the fabulous sales of what uh, we are going to deem perhaps a not-so-fabulous novel. So with that in mind, Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us about the victim or victims of this novel? Well, so there isn't quite a victim exactly to start, unless you would consider Mrs. Hubbard, who is the sister of, wait for it, 
One Miss Felicity Lemon. Yes. The way into the story is the best thing about the story. Oh, it's the best thing about it by far. She is, uh, I guess, the proprietress manager, maybe, of a boarding house for students at 84 to 86 Hickory Road. I guess the hostel, except not exactly because a lot of the people there are long term. And she's very distressed that things have taken some terribly wrong turns there, especially with regards to theft. And, you know, as it turns out over the course of the story, there are three victims among the characters who we meet. And I'm just going to highlight them right now because, quite honestly, our list of suspects is so long that it is helpful to take these people out of that list. So our first victim, who we meet in the course of the story is Celia Austin, who we're just going to go ahead and describe as a dum-dum resident at Hickory Road because that is by far her defining characteristic. Yes, in the novel. We're not just editorializing here. That really is in the text. No, it's really just how people describe her routinely. (laughs) Then next up, we have Mrs. Christina Nicoletis, who is the owner of this boarding house. And finally, we have a late third murder in the novel. And the victim there is Patricia Lane, who is a student living at Hickory Road. All right, Catherine, I fear that it is time to go through our list of suspects, which is, as it so often is in Christie, pretty much everyone we meet because the novel takes place for the most part at this boarding house. And there are a whole lot of people living there. So there's so many. Let's do it. Okay, so we have Mr. Akibambo, who is a West African student. We will get into the depiction of him later. Because, yeah, some problems there. And then um, on top of that, we also have Elizabeth Johnston, who is a very bright Jamaican student, also living at the boarding house. And let me just say, we'll also get into that later. Next up, we've got two redheads, Mm -hmm. uh, male and female. The male is Len Bateson, who is a potential communist, although he 100% fits in the Christie model of leftist, yet well-meaning and at heart good guys. Um, We've seen this character type before. They're very brusque, but underneath they're sort of hiding a genial and perhaps even jovial interior. And then our female redhead is Sally Finch, who is an American Fulbright scholar. So then we have Jean-Vierre Marco, who's a French student, and Renee Pollet, who's another French student. Then we have Valerie Hobhouse, who is not a student. She is a co-owner of Sabrina Fair which is a beauty salon, Mm. which we will get to later. But she does also live at Hickory Road. So she was one of the few non-students living at this boarding house. Then we have Ahmed Ali, who's an Egyptian student. And then Shondalal, who's an Indian student. And then Gopal Ram, who's another Indian student. Next up, we've got Jean Tomlinson, another resident at Hickory Road, as well as Colin McNabb, who is a medical student and rather caustic 
sort of fellow. He too, of course, lives at Hickory Road. Then we have Nigel Chapman, who is another egomaniacal male student, again, living at Hickory Road. And rounding it out, because this is Christy, did you think that there were going to be no characters that fall under the heading of the help? Oh, come now. Of course there are. Those would be Maria and Geronimo, who are Italian cooks working at the boarding house at Hickory Road. All right, Catherine, let's talk about the world as it appears to be in Hickory Dickory Dock. Miss Lemon, perfect Miss Lemon, is off her game. She makes a series of mistakes in drafting some correspondence for Poirot. He, of course, notices. She immediately admits her mistakes and tells him she's been distracted because her sister isn't doing well. And it's a shock for Poirot because, first of all, Miss Lemon has made a misstep and she's never done that before ever and also miss lemon has family (laughs) that's like the big surprise for poirot and i do want to dwell on this for a moment and do a little bit of quoting of the text because as we already mentioned this is by far the best part of the novel our way in here with miss lemon once again though it is so jarring to see miss lemon on the page because christie's depiction of her is so very different from our beloved Pauline Moran's depiction. And it's one of the rare instances where I think of Miss Lemon as Pauline Moran and the way that she plays her. And I don't really care that that does not accord with the textual representation of her. I know that that is just completely, you know, outrageous of me as a Christie fan and scholar. But I just I love Pauline Moran's depiction too much. And it hurt me to read her being described as, quote, that hideous and efficient woman. And then when Poirot points out her mistakes, this is uh, what Christie writes, a deep, ugly, unbecoming flush that dyed her face right up to the roots of her strong, grizzled hair. (laughs) Pauline Moran would never let her hair go gray as Miss Lemon. Come on. No, she'd have perfect finger curls. No, a ridiculous idea. Absolutely ridiculous. And this is the last uh, part of the text I'll quote because it is legitimately funny. This is Poirot realizing that Miss Lemon actually has a sister. Poirot had never conceived of Miss Lemon's having a sister, or for that matter, having a father, mother, or even grandparents. Miss Lemon somehow was so completely machine-made, a precision instrument, so to speak, that to think of her having affections or anxieties or family worries seemed quite ludicrous. It was well known that the whole of Miss Lemon's heart and mind was given, when she was not on duty, to the perfection of a new filing system, which was to be patented and bear her name. (laughs) And that actually does overlap with Pauline Moran's depiction, because Miss Lemon within the Suchet series is, you know, very passionate about her filing system. But in this case, she's distracted from her potential filing system because her sister is Mrs. Hubbard, who doesn't need to work, but she's moved back to England. and from Singapore. From Singapore, yeah. Living life, traveling abroad. But like Miss Lemon, she can't just sit back and retire She has to work, not because she actually needs money. It's just that she can't not work. So she has gone to essentially manage this boarding house primarily for students and is owned by this Mrs. Nicoletis. Yes, who we're told very early on is Greek. So it's two two row houses that are connected by like a parlor and one side is where the men stay and the other side is where the women stay. 
The last thing I'll say about the way into this novel based on some of Christie's scribblings in her notebook, at one point she considered having Miss Lemon be the she referred to it as matron of the boarding house that, you know, it would just be that Miss Lemon had retired and become the matron of this boarding house. And then she was going to Poirot for help. That could have been interesting too, but the opener of Miss Lemon making three mistakes in a letter is pretty iconic Poirot. Yeah, for sure. And also I like that we find out she has family. Yes. This is where we also find out her first name. Yeah, because I don't think we've ever found out that her first name was Felicity before. No, and I believe that up until now, she's only appeared in short stories as well. Right. So this is, you know, this is a big deal for Miss Lemon within the canon. So unfortunately, as we find out once Mrs. Hubbard comes to Poirot's flat, there have been a series of problems at this boarding house, namely a series of thefts. This is what has been bothering Mrs. Hubbard, hence bothering Miss Lemon. And Mrs. Hubbard invites Poirot to come give a supper lecture to the students slash residents at this boarding house about criminology with the not-so-secret aim of this lecture being that he will have the opportunity to suss out what is wrong in this house, you know, why these petty thefts are happening. Poirot comes and he gives his lecture, and afterward, in typically dramatic Poirotian fashion, he recommends that Mrs. Hubbard call the police, like, immediately. (laughs) Right. Something is clearly, clearly wrong in this house. Um, I also like that everybody is like, who is this old fool who we're having to listen to a lecture from? Yes. It's very much like, oh, I think I heard of that guy once, but he's clearly so ancient that we don't care. Right. Except then he also does eventually get called out, right, for being who he is and the fact that this must just be a pretext. And what is he really doing here? And this is where the students and residents start getting afraid and things start happening. I mean, we should probably just say, because we do learn early on what the petty items that have been stolen are, and it is quite a motley list of items. We don't even have to go through all of them, but I think this will just give you a good sense. A fancy dress shoe, just one not two, Mm -hmm. Uh, chocolates, uh, trousers, a diamond ring, light bulbs, boracic powder, a stethoscope, and a rucksack, or as we would call it in the U.S., a backpack that has been all cut up and sort of like torn into strips. Once Poirot's pretext is removed and, you know, the residents of this boarding house realize that he's there because Mrs. Hubbard is upset about it and has asked him to investigate, what happens next, Catherine? Well, the threat of calling the police gets pretty quickly to Celia Austin. She pretty much immediately confides that, oh, actually, you know what? I'm the one who's been stealing all of this stuff. That includes one of the fancy dress shoes. (laughs) The chocolates, the flannel trousers, the diamond ring. But she denies having stolen the light bulbs, the brassic powder, the stethoscope. And she denies having destroyed the rucksack. And it turns out, well, her kleptomania apparently makes her very alluring to Colin McNabb. Who's a psychology student. Who's a psychology medical student. Mm -hmm. And he abruptly agrees to marry her. Because, hey, why not marry a kleptomaniac? (laughs) More interesting, I guess. The next morning, however, she's dead from an overdose of morphia. 
And she has a fragmented suicide note next to her. It's like a torn off fragment. Well, and the suicide note, of course, is immediately suspicious because it's written on a torn fragment. It's ripped out. And yeah. I'm going to now ask anyone who hasn't read The Moving Finger to fast forward uh, about 30 seconds. But this, of course, immediately made me think of The Moving Finger, where one of the major clues was a quote unquote suicide note written on a fragment of paper. And the deduction there is you don't just tear off a scrap of paper for a suicide note. And that had been doctored to look like a suicide note. So we pretty quickly are told and perhaps even realize if we're astute readers that she couldn't have committed suicide. So it's not really a major clue. That's why it doesn't really count as a clue getting us to the world as it actually is, since that little wrinkle is elucidated pretty quickly. But that is also something that happens throughout this novel. I would also argue this is a very oddly plotted mystery puzzle because it is a mystery puzzle, but a lot of the mysteries in it get solved as we go along and there's less of a kind of grand denouement. So it actually has the linear feel of a thriller to it. The structure is noticeably different from what Christie tends to do in her puzzle mysteries. It's not entirely a thriller because there, there are clues and it is a murder mystery and there's you know specific solution. So it's 100% a puzzle mystery. It's just not presented the way that she normally does. I often appreciate when Christie does something different. This was not one of those times. Scotland Yard, of course, gets called in at this point. And we have our Inspector Distoire, who is Inspector mm-hmm. Sharp. That's Sharp with an E on the end. He's fine. He's not one of the more interesting non-series long inspectors that we get, but I had no beef with him either. No, he's fine. He's fine. Sharp pretty swiftly determines there was this game going on here among the students, specifically the male students, which is the source of a lot of the confusion and obfuscation that is driving the first half of the book. So we are just going to mosey right on through all of that and get to what is actually happening here. And it's this. The ringleader of this little game that the male students were playing is Nigel. And his goal was to collect a whole bunch of deadly poisons, basically because they were just having this conversation where, you know, they were talking about the best way to commit a murder and not get caught. And, you know, Nigel was saying, well, if there's no traceable motive, it's pretty much impossible to be caught. And they were saying, well, no, because how do you even get, you know, whatever you're going to use to kill someone? And he was like, I could easily get three different lethal substances and have no one be the wiser. Basically, the other male students were like, you're on. And he said, okay, I'm going to do it. And he did. (laughs) And um, it's interesting. One of the means he uses, which is by far the most convincing, is another kind of plot point that Christie had been playing around with using for a while. Again, getting this from John Curran in his Agatha Christie's Notebooks books. But it's the idea of stealing a drug from the car of a country doctor, which is pretty cunning in its simplicity. Because, yeah, I'm sure you actually could do that. You know, all he had to do was track a country doctor who left his bag inside his car, left his car unlocked, and not that unusual in 1955 for that to be happening. And he just simply plucked something out of the bag. One of the other methods accounts for the missing stethoscope, by the way, since Nigel pinched it for purposes of impersonating a doctor at a dispensary. So we also don't have to worry about that stethoscope anymore. So he manages, within a matter of weeks, to get three different drugs 
all of which we have dealt with before in previous Christie novels. We have Digitalis, and I'll just name one Christie story we've seen that in. That would be The Herb of Death, a Miss Marple short story, a favorite of mine. We have Hyacene, which was the drug of choice in Black Coffee. Christie's first right. original play, which we covered on one of our Patreon episodes. And then we have Morphine, which, you know, has been used a ton in previous Christie's, perhaps most famously in Sad Cypress. This is all a lark to these students. After Nigel shows it to everyone, he dumps it in the toilet. Everyone sees him do it. And he's basically like, okay, so that's all fine. And the police are like, well, was there a lag time between when you got that morphine and you showed it to everyone and supposedly dumped it down the toilet? And he's like, well, yeah, I had it for a few days in the back of my drawer in my room. And they're like, right. and everyone knew that you were trying to obtain deadly poisons for purposes of this fun little exercise. And he's like, yeah, but oh yeah i guess that could yeah. be a problem yeah and maybe and also maybe everybody would guess that you just hide stuff in your underwear drawer yes well that's been used as a minor plot point in previous christie's including podcast and Catherine brobeck favorite five little pigs the, right the idea that people yes, tend absolutely. to hide things in their bedroom drawers that's not a spoiler i hope no one gets angry at me for that so that is a significant wrinkle here and that seems to be how this morphine was obtained for purposes of killing Celia. We still don't know who did it or exactly how they did it, but given that everyone is living in this boarding house that affords everyone fairly universal access, you know, the men do live on one side, the women on another, but it's not as if there is a lock on each wing. So everyone pretty much could have done anything. Well, there are also balconies. Yeah, there's balconies that you could technically jump potentially from one balcony to another. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity here is extremely open. <laughs> so it sort of allows all these people to remain suspects for the duration of the novel in a good way. I mean, that's very classic Christie. There's also what seems to be a little side plot going on with the diamond ring, which was one of the items Celia did admit to stealing. The thing is, the ring already turned up rather improbably at dinner one night in Valerie's soup. Poirot and perhaps some of our very astute readers deduces from the way that the soup is served at the boarding house that Valerie had to have been involved with the returning of the ring for it to show up in her soup. And he confronts her about this. She admits that she was the one who gave, you know, poor Dom Celia the idea to steal things so as to attract Colin, who Celia had a crush on, but who apparently only had eyes for head cases, alarmingly, I guess. As Poirot puts it, this is what young people connect over these days. Um, he's implying, I guess, mental illness, but Colin is also a psychology grad student, so I guess that factors into it. So we know that Valerie was Celia's confidant when it came to all these petty thefts, but then Poirot goes further. He tells Valerie that he had a jeweler examine the ring who informed him that the supposed diamond is actually a white zircon. In other words, it's a fake. So, upon pressing, Valerie admits that, yeah, the ring was in fact in her possession for a little while. Celia gave it to her after she realized she accidentally stole something valuable and that she had the diamond replaced with a zircon so that she could pay off gambling debts since apparently she has a big gambling problem. Okay, it's a thing that happened. 
So that's another slight little mystery <laughs> that we're presented with right. early on in the book, right. which now gets cleared up. And you're like, okay, cool. Let's keep on going. And keep on going, we shall. So... Mrs. Nicoletis, in the meantime, is not a very pleasant person in general. We will also get to her portrayal when we are talking about the many, many stuck-in-its-time elements of this novel. The police are searching her cupboards in in her room. She doesn't sleep in the boarding house, but she has her own room there, and they find just tons of brandy bottles in there. So apparently she's an alcoholic. This partly explains her bad temper. Again, another tiny little mystery cleared up there. And she seems to be shady and elusive even after this revelation. So her shadiness isn't just tied to her drinking problem. We then follow Mrs. Nicoletis to a bar, a pub, where she gets drunk and then proceeds to have a one-sided conversation with someone a la a murder is announced. I won't spoil who gets murdered in a murder is announced when that happens, but anyone who's read the book will know exactly what I'm talking about because Christy doesn't do that very often where you kind of see the murder happening in situ, as it were. But she does Mm -hmm. interact with someone who we glean after the fact must have been the murderer because right after she leaves the pub, she essentially collapses on the street and subsequently dies. So it seems that she has been poisoned by this person she was speaking with at the pub, who we do know, we get the sense that it's someone she knows, someone from this boarding house. Right, because she's like a little bit surprised to see them there and they have a familiar conversation. Right. Nigel gets called into the police station. Nigel has been a little bit iffy from the get-go here. And at the police station, he ends up taking a phone call from Pat, who has had some information about bicarbonate of soda and is wanting to tell him about it. Anyway, they all go back to the boarding house after the call from Pat. But by the time they get there, she's dead. We also, during all of this, find out that Nigel's mother died some years previously, having potentially been killed by his father and or having committed suicide with, I guess, barbarians. So all of this is iffy, dodgy. Indeed. And I and I will just call out that the murder of Pat very much has that feel to it of the late murders in After the Funeral. And even, this is calling back way, way in the past, Lord Edgeware dies. You know, occasionally mm-hmm. in these stories, we get these late murders. And John Curran himself, who usually has only the nicest things to say about Christie in his discussion of Hickory Dickory Dock, which he is also not a big fan of. He brings up that delightful passage in Cards on the Table when Ariadne Oliver is talking about how sometimes she realizes that her books aren't long enough and she has to pad them out with another murder. <laughs> and she's like, ah, right. just give him more blood. It'll be fine. He's, he says it's hard not to think of that passage when reading Hickory Dickory Dock. And I agree with him. More on that later when we get to the rankings, just setting the stage there. We also learn that Pat, the now deceased Pat, fussily switched out that bottle of morphia in Nigel's drawer for bicarbonate of soda because she knew that Nigel had obtained this deadly poison and had put it in his drawer. So she just took it upon herself to switch it out for bicarbonate of soda. And she actually put what she believed was the morphia, which is probably worth clarifying here, was in powder form. She put what she assumed was the morphia into a bottle labeled bicarbonate of soda, which she then put in her 
bedroom drawer. Why she thought it was safer in her bedroom drawer than Nigel's bedroom drawer is not really all that clear, as evidenced by what happened next, which is that Mr. Akibambo, who is the West African student we have been avoiding talking about for reasons that will become clear when we get to Stuck in Its Time, he is relating a story to the police about how one day recently he had stomach trouble and he asked if anyone had any bicarbonate of soda lying around. And Elizabeth, you know, one of the other students was all, oh, yeah, I saw a bottle in Pat's drawer. So at this point, the police's eyes widened and Mrs. Hubbard is actually listening to to the story as well. And she starts whispering about Rasputin, which was one of the only legitimately funny moments for me in this book, because, you know, Rasputin is famous for imbibing all sorts of poison and never dying. So she She's like, oh, my God, is he like Rasputin? Did this man just like ingest all this morphine by accident and he's still alive? How is this possible? So Mr. Akibambo talks about taking the contents of this bicarbonate of soda and bottle and ingesting them and not feeling very good. And he says, I felt so bad, in fact, that I brought the bottle to a chemist and the chemist told me, oh, that's not bicarbonate of soda. It's brassic powder. So this is the long missing brassic powder that was on that list of items that uh, Mrs. Hubbard gave Poirot at the very beginning of the novel. So we know that at some point, someone actually switched out the morphia for brassic powder. We don't know when that happened. It could have been while the bottle was in Nigel's possession, or it could have been while the bottle was in Pat's possession. And as we've already mentioned, pretty much everyone had access to everything inside this boarding house, no matter where it was. But we do have a better sense now of how the morphine got from the bottle Nigel first brought inside the house, and then ultimately into poor Celia's body. All right, it's time for some clues. And our first clue, believe it or not, has to do with access. (laughs) I know we've been saying that everyone had access inside this boarding house. And while that is true, let's just take a page out of Monsieur Poirot's book and use our little gray cells to look at this logically. We know that the morphine that had first been put in Nigel's drawer was switched out, either when it was still in Nigel's drawer or when it was in Pat's drawer. So there are two people with particularly super duper good access, namely Nigel and Pat. The deduction here is that since Pat is dead, we can't be suspicious of her, so we should be highly suspicious of Nigel. He had oodles of opportunity to switch out that morphia and replace it with brassic powder. Clue number two has to do with all those items that were stolen. From the beginning, it's a bewildering uh, array of items, due not only to its eclectic nature, but also the sheer number of items. And Poirot helps us out because he asked Mrs. Hubbard to make the list a second time. And this time, she puts the items in chronological order from when they were stolen. And so we learned that the first items stolen were the rucksack that was torn to pieces and some light bulbs, specifically the light bulbs from the front hall, hmm, suspicious, of the boarding house, as well as the replacement bulbs that the Italian servant, Geronimo, went to get after noticing that the hall bulb was missing. So, deduction. Since they were the first things to go missing, the rucksack and the light bulbs were probably key. And indeed, Christy plays fair here because Paro harps on the rucksack a lot. He even goes so far as to visit the shop down the street from the boarding house where students tend to buy their rucksacks. And he notes how one popular version has a lining at the base that can be removed quite easily so that someone could conceal something in there if they wanted to. Mm. So, you know, our dear astute readers, do we maybe have a classic Christie smuggling plot here? And what do we smuggle? Jewels and drugs. 
Did we mention that this uh, book is a little thrillery? Because this is certainly a classic Christie thriller trope happening with the rucksack. Clue number three is kind of a mixture of our Occam's Razor principle and what I will now always officially refer to as our Oprah slash Maya Angelou clue. One of the most important lessons I ever learned from you, and I still am, you know, I think I know the lesson, and then I'll walk into a situation and think that's that same lesson, and that is when people show you who they are, believe them. Yes, absolutely. A person says to you, I'm selfish, or... I'm mean, or I am unkind. Or I'm crazy. Or I'm cra- Believe them. They know themselves much better than you do. Mm-hmm. Basically, there are two characters among all these boarding house residents who are particularly sketchy, once we dispense with Mrs. Nicolettis, who is one of our victims, of course. And they are the lady with the supposed gambling addiction who hocked a diamond and then had it replaced with a fake jewel. And the guy who went around the country obtaining deadly poisons he then shoved into his sock drawer. Let us remind ourselves that that is the same guy whose mother apparently died under suspicious circumstances. Deduction there is that as astute readers, we should have our gimlet eyes trained squarely on Valerie and Nigel. So let's talk about the world as it actually is, in which we have a raid. That's right, we have a veritable raid on our hands here, people, of Sabrina Fair, the beauty parlor where Miss Valerie Hophouse works. And this raid very much pays off because the police find many, many passports bearing Valerie's image, but not her name. My favorite of her aliases, by the way, is Nina Le Miserier, which is a nice shout out to the Poirot short story, The Le Miserier Inheritance. So it seems as though Valerie has been the ringleader of quite a sophisticated drug and jewel smuggling ring, using students as mules for transporting diamonds and heroin between the UK and the continent. The contraband is being stuffed in the false bottom of those rucksacks, of course. And since students are all about the rucksacks, this is the perfect scheme to operate when you live in a boarding house full of students, as Valerie does. But she's not working alone. Oh no, she has an accomplice. Nigel Chapman is not actually Nigel Chapman. His real name is Nigel Stanley. Mm -hmm. And we learn in a bit of an information dump at the end of the novel, let's just be honest about it. We learn that his father, I believe Lord Stanley, died shortly before the end of the novel. And he left a letter with his solicitor, who is a Mr. Endicott, who Poirot knows. And there is reference made between Mr. Endicott and Poirot to, quote, that Abernethy business. But this is one of Christie's most curious and flawed references to one of her other novels. It's a huge continuity error because the Abernethy business, of course, is referring to after the funeral. But she spelled Abernethy differently. And after the funeral ends in I.E. and here it ends in Y. So that's a problem. An even bigger problem, though, is that the older, almost retired, but not quite retired lawyer in After the Funeral, who clearly seems to be who she means to include in this novel is Mr. Endicott. His name is Mr. Entwistle, not Mr. Endicott. So that's interesting. Anywho, Mr. Endicott, because he does know Poirot, sort of clues him into what's going on here. And he shows him the letter. And what the letter proves is what, Catherine? Well, so Nigel killed his mother with Benal, which is a barbiturate, and his father, Arthur, had tried to shield him at the request of Nigel's dying mother because it's actually a slow-acting poison. So she realized that she'd been poisoned. She was trying to protect her son anyway. But Arthur made Nigel write the confession just in case 
That's a letter that the solicitor has, this confession to his mother's murder. Right, because even though Valerie and Nigel were in cahoots as to this smuggling scheme, the murders were all committed by Nigel and Nigel alone. Basically, what happened is that the police came to the hostel one day on an entirely unrelated matter, which we will also get to when we get into the stuck in its time elements of this novel. But Nigel panicked because he thought they'd found out about the smuggling scheme. So he tore up a rucksack that had contraband in it and hid it, thereby putting the rucksack out of commission so that the police couldn't find it and take it away and discover traces of the contraband in it. At the same time, Valerie then told Celia, hey, why don't you just start stealing a couple of things so that then there would just be a long list of things stolen and no one would focus on this rucksack or these light bulbs being stolen in the front hallway of the boarding house because Nigel had also done that so that the police wouldn't be able to see him very right. easily, which <laughs> is get the lights a little out. silly. I mean, maybe he could have just like not been around when the police came. I don't know if he had to really steal light bulbs, but Celia knew he was the one who had cut up the rucksack. She also knew that Valerie had multiple passports. She'd seen them lying about. Apparently she was a dum-dum, but very observant. So Nigel took it upon himself to kill Celia, telling Valerie after the fact. Then Nigel killed Mrs. Nicolettis because she was in on the smuggling scheme, which makes sense since she owned the boarding house. This also accounts for all her shadiness. And the issue there is that she seemed like she was going to crack. So Nigel met her at that pub and poisoned her drink. He actually never told Valerie about that one for reasons that will become obvious in just a moment. And then Pat had to go because she was a meddler, as we saw with that bottle in the drawer business. But even more importantly, she was making noises about writing to Nigel's father to get the two of them to reconcile. And given Nigel's backstory with his dear old dad, he obviously could not let that happen. So Nigel actually killed Pat before he went to the police station. And then he had Valerie call up and pretend to be Pat. So Valerie went along with all this as an accessory, but she did not kill anyone, and she very much wants Nigel hanged, since we also find out that Valerie's mother was, wait for it, Mrs. Nicolettis. Sure. And, um, you know, obviously our first lover's pairing of Colin and Celia didn't work out so well, but this is a Christie novel, so we do sort of have to end at least on the hope of a happy ending for two lovebirds, and we do get that, don't we, Catherine? Oh, yeah. Apparently, Sally and Len, who we care so much about, Kemper. So deeply. Sally, the Fulbright scholar, Len, the possible communist with red hair. They, I guess, are badly in love and are now going to get married. Fantastic. The end. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Okay, Catherine, I know you've been enjoying some best fiends lately because you won't stop bragging about what level you've reached. Where are you now? I'm on level 98, Kemper. It's 98? Well, let's just say you are on fire, but that doesn't really surprise me since Best Fiends is a game that appeals to all lovers of puzzles. Oh, of course, because you go through different levels solving little puzzles on your screen, helped out by these cute little critters you collect along the way. Who is your favorite critter this week? It's the same as last week, and I keep upgrading him. His name is Howie. He's a lizard. Now he's dressed in a wizard robe and has a wand. 
I like that you stay true to your critters. You're not a fair weather friend. Or a fair weather fiend. Good one. There is a good chance that you, our puzzle-loving listeners, will enjoy this game too. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. In the early 60s, there was talk of doing a musical adaptation of this book with, wait for it, Peter Sellers playing Poirot. Apparently, John Dankworth was going to do the music. There were a few songs written. The project even got a title. It was called Death Beat. But alas, nothing came of it. What we do have is the David Suchet adaptation of this one. It appears in series slash season six. It's the second of four feature length episodes. This is actually the last of the quote unquote early episodes. This is the season that took almost two years to air. It's four episodes. It led to a four year interruption. And then when the show came back, it came back in its darker form. And it's interesting because our good friend Mark Aldridge notes in his book, Agatha Christie on screen, that this was the first post-war Christie novel to be adapted with in the series, but in that the novel is situated within the family that this series chose to highlight so much in the early seasons, i.e. Miss Lemon, Hastings, Inspector Jap, in that Miss Lemon is the way into this novel, even though it's a later novel, it actually was a pretty natural choice for those earlier seasons. This isn't an early season, but again, it's the end of those earlier seasons. I think it's pretty obvious at this point in the episode that we don't like this novel very much always speaking relatively for Christie. You know, I think that I would be hard-pressed to find any adaptation of this novel all that pleasing. And I'm sorry to say I wasn't really all that pleased by this adaptation. I think that... Well, it's Anthony Horowitz, and he does, I think, the best job he possibly could have with the source material, especially having to transplant it into the 1930s, right? Yeah, that's the thing. He has to transplant something that's very much set in post-World War II to the 30s. There's one continuity error they make, which is that Sally is still a Fulbright scholar, and the Fulbrights were not awarded until after World War II. Right. A rare error in the Suchet series. But I agree with you. I mean, he has to make some tough choices here because of what this novel is doing and not doing. There's one thing that I do find it hard to forgive him for, and that is the constant mouse shots within (laughs) this adaptation. It is relentless. We are constantly watching this mouse peer up in like holes in the floor and the wall and watch the proceedings. There's like a, a mouse eye view camera. I don't think that's Anthony Horowitz's fault. He wasn't the director of it. True. It is more of a direction note. As people know, especially if you've listened to our Patreon episode about magpie murders, we love us some Anthony Horowitz. I have no, I have no problem with the, with the writing. And actually, there's an interesting overlap when it comes to the solution of this novel and magpie murders. So... 
for anyone who doesn't want magpie murder spoiled, you can go ahead and fast forward 30 seconds. But I couldn't help noticing that Horowitz also used the idea of someone writing a letter about past crimes the murderer committed as a sort of insurance policy. It figures quite centrally in his novel, actually, and it's yet another Christie trope slash trick that he mined for that wonderful book. So I just wanted to point that out. I have to think that having worked on Hickory Dickory Dock as closely as he did for this adaptation led to that idea's inclusion when he was working on magpie murders. But yeah, I just wasn't a big fan of all the mouse stuff because, again, this nursery rhyme framing is so silly within Christie's story. I don't know why they chose to highlight it even more than it is in the book. At least Christie just kind of seems to forget about it. And we also have constant, constant chanting of singers going... Every 10 minutes. I know. It's so distracting. One of the things that we might note is the biggest change from the novel to the adaptation, which is that they excised the foreign students for the most part. Let's be blunt about it. They excised the non-white characters from the adaptation. And I understand why. And it's, it's you know, what we're going to talk about when we get yeah. to our second time category. As I so often do, I'm going to rely on Mark Aldrich's analysis here because he says it best and he says it a lot more succinctly than I do. <laughs> this is what he had to say about that. The novel itself had an awkward expression of contemporary youth and broad and stereotypical characterizations of the non-Caucasian lodgers, all of whom are removed from this adaptation, which at best feels like a rather drastic solution to the problem, and at worst creates an impression that only white characters are seen as suitable for this world of Poirot. Given the problematic characterization of the non-white characters in this book, I understand why the entire production team adapting this novel said, we don't want to go there. But then, you know, you do run the risk of essentially whitewashing the novel because now it has only white characters in it. You're 100% whitewashing it. I mean, there's no question about that. But then you have to realize that the people of color in the novel aren't actually characters. I mean, I think that you just end up pinned in this corner of either you do what they did in the adaptation, which is get rid of the problematic depictions, or you have to reconfigure the whole thing. Maybe they should have reconfigured, but the thing is, the book doesn't leave a lot of room for the actual mystery in it. So... Right. That's the other thing. The book has too many characters in it, regardless of its issues in terms of its depiction of non-white characters. There are too many students in that boarding house. So not only did Anthony Horowitz and the entire team think to themselves, well, we have some problematic depictions here. We also just have too many characters. So they needed to cut down anyway. So I totally understand why they did it. It just it highlights some of the issues with the book. And I do think that this is also where that relentless chanting is coming from. We see sometimes I think in the Suchet series, that when the source material isn't giving them quite enough, which doesn't happen often, but it does happen sometimes, that they kind of resort to these showy antics. It's almost like a, hey, hey, look over here, look over here. Please don't focus on how how little we actually have to to go on here. And um, I think that's where the singing is coming from. I also think it's where we have this really, really bizarre 
runner. Inspector Jap, of course, is the Inspector de Soir in this episode. And that, of course, is fine. Of course, Jap is going to replace Inspector Sharp. And there's this side plot in which Inspector Jap stays with Poirot because his wife is out of town and he can't take care of himself. What's that thing in the bathroom, Poirot? Come on. Like a um, foot bath. Uh, the bidet. Oh, bidet. It's got a sort of fountain thing in the middle. What's that for? Uh, it is of no significance. Nearly got a squirt in the eye when I turn it on. <laughs> it is best not to tamper with it, Chief Inspector. It is broken. It finally culminates in this close-up shot of Jap coming into the bathroom in the middle of the night because he also can't handle the central heating that Poirot has on. It's, like, too hot and stuffy for him. And putting his head over the bidet and, like, splashing water all over his face. The series has its more zany, wacky, comedic moments, but this one feels really far even for the series and then we also have this is actually um a scene that long long ago when we first started doing this podcast we had a listener contact us about the final scene in this episode which is the cap to this ongoing poirot jap joke because after jap has been staying with poirot and puzzling over the bidet he has poirot over for a proper english meal and this is the result now that is what i call food that's your mashed potato. This is your peas. Right. Mushy peas, we call them. You'll love them. And this, the pièce de résistance, faggots. 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 And they're spotted dick for afters. This is tragic, Chief Inspector. I can eat none of this wonderful food. What? Why? Because I have an allergy of the faggot. An allergy? I, I do not know how you say it in English, but in Belgian it is known as la phobie de fagot. I never heard of that. I'm so sorry, Chief Inspector, I should have warned you. Still, you can have some spotted dick. You haven't got a phobie de dick, have you? No. Now, we do realize that the term faggot has a very different meaning in British English as opposed to American English. So I don't want to be all American centric here. You know, I think this is one of those cases, though, where we should remember the time period in which the adaptation was made, which was the mid 90s, at which point I have to imagine that the double entendre of that exchange did not go unnoticed. Clearly, those characters speaking in the mid-30s would not have been speaking about anything other than food. But I do think there's an argument to be made that we as viewers can reasonably infer that there are allusions being made to something else, even though I will make the caveat that it is an argument to be made. I do understand that some people might watch that scene and have zero problem with it. But especially given what else is happening in that episode, I do think that there is an even somewhat convincing argument to be made to that effect. I mean, there is this Eurosensitivity gay panic thing that goes on in some of these episodes. It's happened in other ones with Jap and Poirot, too. You know, it has. It's just, it's really obvious here because the A story, so to speak, i.e. the mystery, is so lacking. It just gets really big and it takes over 
the viewer's attention in a way that it hasn't on other episodes. So, you know, right. not one of the best novels, but also really not one of the best adaptations either. And saying that again, with all of the love and adulation that we have for Anthony Horowitz and all that he does. Oh, and we'd also be quite remiss if we did not mention that the red-haired Len Bateson is played by an extremely young Damian Lewis, which is unquestionably a point in its favor. Point in its favor for you. I don't know. <laughs> my my opinions about Homeland can be off the record. Oh, well, when I think Damian Lewis, my first thought is the Foresight Saga. Still. Oh, well, so. fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just think it's a troublesome book, and we can go into the rankings now, but we talk a lot about problems that we have with, like, Secret of Chimneys or whatever, but I don't think Secret of Chimneys is problematic in the same way that this is. This is going to be a a situation in which our rankings are kind of centered around the Stuck in Its Time category. I don't think there's a way around it. No, there's not. I mean, often we talk about Stuck in His Time at the end, right? And we talk about it sometimes in a tacked-on way that I hope doesn't come across as flippant or not taking the issues that arise from reading Christie, well, you know, in today's day and age. Know, um, no, but I mean, I will, I will say also this, that I think that it is unfair to judge something solely by the standards of the age that you are living in because stuff will change five years down the line. Mm-hmm. And so you have to balance that out with the merits of the work in and of itself. And so it's a combination of trying to be sensitive towards those concerns um, and acknowledging that they read as troublesome today. This is just, I don't think there's a way to discuss the book without talking about that first. Yeah. I mean, for me, it does bring into focus the way that we often deal with the stuck in his time issue, because I do think, and, and I'm really just speaking for me now, I often think of it as a whiplash or whipsaw <laughs> effect in Christie when I read, because usually when I read a Christie novel, I'm blown away by her powers of creation, by the brilliance of her plotting, her characterization and everything, you know, all of these categories that we go through at the end of each of these novels. I'm usually extremely impressed by something, if not everything, in every novel. And then often, because it really does come up consistently in Christie, there will be these elements, these moments that jar, right? And where you're like, oh, that does certainly did not age well and does not read well and needs to be dealt with because that is a big part of what it's like to read Christie as a reader today. It's often a throwaway reference. And again, I'm not saying this to either belittle the stuck in his time elements or belittle anyone else's experiences, reading the books. And we'll talk about it, I think, more squarely in a separate announcement. But we've been thinking a lot, especially given, you know, what's going on in the U.S. in terms of a lot of people kind of reckoning with our own troubled past and present and trying to, you know, figure out a way to make the future better than the past has been and better than the present, quite frankly, is, especially when it comes to issues of race. It's something that we've been thinking a lot about. I know a lot of you are thinking about it as well. And we've even gotten some feedback about the fact that this is an important aspect of reading Christie, and people want to make sure that we're giving it its due. And that's always been our intention to do so with the Stuck in His Time category. But we would like to, I think, deal 
deal with that issue a little bit more squarely in its own episode, perhaps, where we also are going to encourage you, our listeners, to tell us how you negotiate these issues, what your experience is. So more on that to come. I just kind of want to put that out there. So that being said, let's talk about Stuck in Its Time first, rather than talking about it last for the rankings here. And this was the distinction I was trying to draw between this novel and a lot of Christie's other novels when it comes to Stuck in His Time. In this case, the problematic elements of this novel are so integral to the novel itself that, you know, my argument is going to be that Christie's problematic characterization of so many of the people within this novel is part and parcel of why and how this novel doesn't work. One of the characters who we mentioned as Elizabeth, who is a Jamaican intelligent graduate student who um, is pretty useful at observation, they call her Black Bess. And one of the main characters says, oh, it's okay. She likes being called that. That's in the first 20 pages or something of the novel. So this is the problem here. This is a novel that deals with a boarding house filled with international students, many of whom are either from Africa, from India, Caribbean, or from India. They are treated like props in the novel. And I don't really know how acceptable it would have been even in 1955, but certainly not today. You can't read it and not just be appalled because it happens so early on that you are being introduced to a world that is inhabited by people who are being treated as less than, and it's not okay. Right. It's not even like, oh, there are a lot of elements and they happen all throughout the novel, so it's hard to get away from them. The stuck in his time elements are part of the world that is created within this novel. They are integral to the novel itself. Well, and on, and on top of it, we also, we also mentioned that Mrs. Nick quote unquote, who owns the boarding house. You know, she's Greek. And so what she's portrayed as this sort of dark, dirty alcoholic. Yeah. Mrs. Nicoletis is described by Sally Finch as, quote, that old she-wolf. She gives me the creeps every time I pass her, end quote. And then there's the cartoonish way she goes nuts when the police find her stash of empty brandy bottles. Here's just a snippet of what she says in that scene. Beast and pig of a policeman, I spit at you, I spit, I spit, I spit. She actually reminded me of Mitzi from A Murder is Announced, the way she's meant to be a figure of fun. And as was the case with Mitzi, which was also a very problematic depiction, I think there's a lot of condescension in the portrayal. And unfortunately, that's almost entirely coming from Christy, not from the characters within the story. For example, after the police are done searching her room in that scene, Mrs. Nicoletta says to Mrs. Hubbard, if you had not been there as a witness, they would have torn my clothes off me without shame. And it's meant to be funny. We're meant to be laughing at her. So that's not good. And I think it's worth clarifying as well, because I so agree with you, Catherine, that the mention of Black Bess, and that happens, it's on page 27 of my copy. So very early on, you know, right after we get that nickname, Christy uses the narrative voice to explain that nickname. And she writes, the nickname was an affectionate one and had been accepted as such by the girl herself. Mm -hmm. That is not coming from a character's mouth. We will always give Christy the benefit of the doubt. It is, it is character. It is not coming from the character that is coming from the, the narrator. And the other character who probably fares the worst because Christy focuses on him the most out of any of the non-white characters in the book is Mr. Akibambo. 
There's another moment early in the book when Mrs. Nicoletis is actually railing about how she's willing to throw out all the non-white lodgers in her boarding house because she assumes that Sally Finch, who's an American, is a segregationist. And Mrs. Nicoletis is all about keeping Sally Finch in her boarding house because she's a Fulbright scholar and she hopes that more Fulbright scholars will come in her wake. And again, this moment is meant to be light. Mrs. Nicoletis says... And if it is these colored students, these Indians, these negresses, then they can all go. You understand the color bar. It means everything to these Americans. And for me, it is the Americans that matter. As for these colored ones, scram. And by color bar, she means the notion of racial segregation. And then Mrs. Hubbard responds, you're wrong. There's no feeling of that sort here amongst the students. And Sally certainly isn't like that. She and Mr. Akibambo have lunch together quite often, and nobody could be blacker than he is. So right from the get-go, she's using the non-white characters as props, as the butt of throwaway jokes, and this happens throughout the novel. She also continues to make constant references to the color of Mr. Akipombo's skin, the texture of his hair, the state of his teeth, and the fact that even though he is educated in the Western tradition, he still carries with him some traditional beliefs, which are also very much played for laughs. We even have one other whole non-white character, that would be Mr. Ahmed Ali, whose only notable mention, I would argue, in the book is when the police searches things and find, quote, some extremely pornographic literature and postcards, end quote, in his possession. Again, he's the butt of a joke. And this is the milieu in which Christie chose to set her story, an international boarding house in which so many of the residents are really never given an opportunity to exist. So is it any wonder that the more traditionally drawn white characters never really get off the page either? And the stuck-in-his-time issues even bleed over directly into the puzzle mystery itself, because it's worth noting what brought the police to the boarding house in the first place, which is the incident that set off the whole plot, right? Since the police's presence is what made Nigel destroy the rucksack and steal those light bulbs, we find out that there was another African student, we never learn his name, who had apparently been acting as a pimp for some woman while getting, quote, national assistance, end quote. And the police were coming to the common room of the boarding house to ask Mr. Akibambo whether this other African student had told him where he was going to stay. We're meant to assume, I believe, that Mr. Akibambo had no such information, but we're never told because it simply isn't important in the course of telling this story. And while Nigel's reaction to the police bombarding their way into the common room is central to the mystery, there's zero indication as to how Mr. Akibambo felt about the whole experience because, again, Mr. Akibambo is not on an equal footing with the white characters in the book. It's as simple as that, and it's terrible. They all speak in, like, a patois, too. Yes, they all speak either more formally than the white characters or in more of a broken dialogue. They, none of them speak in as natural a manner as the white characters. They speak almost in less natural English than the French characters. I just... We love Christie. We have not been doing this podcast for four years without loving Agatha Christie, but Um, it's not good. So, like, if we are going into the plot mechanics and plot credibility, I think both of us had a hard time even working our way through what we were going to discuss with the plot elements because it doesn't really make any sense. Well, and that's where, again, though, I'll make my point that I think that the stuck in its time elements are so integral to the story that they affect every single category within our rankings because there's an inauthenticity to the world and almost a lack of interest. Like you can feel it. Christy has lots of fun, you know, with different sets 
settings, right? Like she goes to foreign countries and there are often extremely problematic aspects of some of those worlds that she creates. But again, this is so integral that so many of the characters she's creating here are not created on an equal footing, really, that it kind of mars the world, which then makes the characters break down, which then makes their interactions break down, which makes the plot break down, which makes the mystery break down. And it's over. You know, the foundation is moldy and crumbling and the house of cards falls from there. I have not said that about any other Christie book, but I just think this thing is rotten from the inside. Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't thought about it like that, but yeah, that uh, I think that's a valid. Like, I, I don't guess. think it's a coincidence that the plot mechanics, the plot credibility, the book specific characters and the setting and tone are all some of the worst that we've encountered. I think it's exactly because of this issue. I guess so. I mean, I have to say, I just found myself bewildered because I never feel like this about Christie books. And I just read this and was like, just no. Again, I don't mean to try to be like some woke crowd pleaser or something like that. It's not that. It's that the dynamics here, you're right. It's like it's rotten from the inside and they don't work. I just want to pull out one section because Christy, we're constantly talking about what a good stylist she is as a writer, that, you know, she has this spare, lean, economical way of writing and she keeps the pages turning. And part of the way that she does that so consistently is through excellent dialogue. Mm -hmm. Like she's so good at dialogue. The dialogue in this book is some of the most wooden and stilted that I've ever read. It's also, by the way, it's a lot of dialogue. The whole book is actually largely dialogue. I know. It is a ton of dialogue between this ridiculously huge cast of students living in this boarding house. And we've already talked about, I'm not going to quote any of the stilted dialogue when it comes to the non-white characters. I think we've made our point on that score. But there is this one interchange. So this is Sally and Valerie talking in the wake of Celia having just passed away. Sally, do you ever find yourself looking at people? What do you mean, Val, looking at people? Well, looking and wondering, is it you? I've got a feeling, Sally, that there's someone here who's mad, really mad, bad mad, I mean, not just thinking they're a cucumber. That may well be, said Sally. She shivered. Ouch, she said. Somebody's walking over my grave. That is not what we're used to reading in a Christie novel. No. And that's what I mean from the, you know, rotten from the inside, because that exchange ostensibly has nothing to do with the stuck in his time elements. Those are two white characters, two types of characters that Christie has created in countless other novels. You know, she's made people like that to function quite efficiently and brilliantly in her other plots and to have interesting, uh, diverting dialogue. And it's just not happening here. No, and again, you're supposed to be rooting at the end for Sally and Len to get together. And it's like, why? Yeah, you're just sort of like, wait, which ones are they again? That's what I found myself saying the whole time I was reading. I was like, wait, which one is that again? Let's go through the categories. Let's go through in a regular order. What would you give plot mechanics and plot credibility, Catherine? Here's the thing. I actually find the plot credibility if it were executed better. The idea of having a smuggling ring run out of a student boarding house makes quite a bit of sense. And so from the credibility angle, I actually am kind of fully on board. I actually agree with that 100%. I wouldn't give plot credibility a super low score. I might give it like a five and I would give plot mechanics a three. 
for sure for the mechanics, but the credibility, I might even go so high as a six. I could do a six. This isn't one of her thrillers, even though it's a thriller-like puzzle mystery. And even though I just finished saying that the stuck in his time elements affect every single one of these categories, they obviously affect the character and setting and tone categories a lot more directly. And there are clever little tricks and obfuscations that she employs that we talked about. So even though as a whole, I still don't feel very good about the mechanics, which is why I think a three makes sense. I think giving it a six in plot credibility is actually giving it its due when it comes to. No, I think I think the credibility makes sentence here. I'm fine with that. In terms of the series long character, you know, we do have Miss Lemon, although we she really does disappear after the beginning of the book. But it is nice that she is our way in to the book. You know, we get actually Poirot being quite chauvinistic. He goes on this whole monologue about how unalluring Patricia Lane is and what a waste it is. <laughs> that yeah. She's intelligent and cultured, but she doesn't really pay attention to what she looks like or what she dresses. And she's just going to get old. And then he thinks about Countess Rosikoff. <laughs> I know. I did notice the Countess Rosikoff reference. There's also, this is a le- like a legitimate question at the very end of the novel. Poirot does have an interaction with Miss Lemon on the final page. We have this really short little vignette that ends the novel, and he congratulates Miss Lemon on the fact that she didn't make any mistakes <laughs> in, right. in the last of the letters. And, you know, she looks offended. She's like, I don't often make mistakes, I hope. And then Poirot says, not often, but it has happened. How was your sister, by the way? And Miss Lemon tells him that she's thinking of going on a cruise to the northern capitals. And then this is what Christie writes. Ah, said Hercule Poirot. He wondered if possibly on a cruise? Not that he himself would undertake a sea voyage, not for any inducement. And then she has the clock behind him strike one and she does the hickory dickory dock nursery rhyme. And Miss Lemon is like, wait, what did you say? And Poirot says, nothing. (laughs) That's how the book ends, which is fitting for this book. But is she implying that Poirot maybe wanted to pursue something romantic with Mrs. Hubbard? Yeah, it does read a little bit like that, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Bizarre. I mean, she so rarely goes there with Poirot, and I think she's Well, no, well, you only get it with Countess Rosikoff. And apparently Ma Hubbard. I was going to give it a five. I think you said a seven. I I would be okay with a six. A seven, I think, is a little high. This is fine. I'll go with a six. That's fine. Then when it comes to book-specific characters... No. Yeah, I think this is pretty bad. I mean, I I think a, a three? Sure. A three is very low. Have we gone as low as a three ever? We did in the Murder on the Links and the Big Four. So yeah, I think a Sounds three. Sounds right. And just in the effort not to shortchange what Christy is accomplishing with these characters to the extent that she is, I actually have two fun little tidbits about the characters in this novel. The first has to do with Valerie Hobhouse, and I'm getting this from a friend of the podcast, Laura Thompson, who tells us in her fabulous biography of Christy, Agatha Christie, A Mysterious Life, that the physical model for Valerie was actually based on a real person. That would be Barbara Parker, a fellow archaeologist of Max Mallowins and a friend of the family, who Thompson describes as, quote, lean and fine-boned with an angular face and large, eloquent eyes. And Barbara Parker is interesting because she is the person who Max Mallowin would actually marry a year after Christie's death in 1976, Max himself dying just one year after that. 
people speculate, of course, that there may have been something going on between Max and Barbara before Christie's death. But as far as I can tell, there's certainly no proof on that matter. So I think we do best not to assume anything. But apparently Christie wrote in her notebook, quote, Valerie rather like Barbara, end quote. So that's interesting. And then on the second tidbit, apparently someone wrote in to Agatha Christie, whose name was Nicoletis, a Mr. Nicoletis, to complain that Agatha Christie had libeled his mother, who he claimed Agatha had met in her own pension, like I think in Paris. So this is what Agatha wrote to her agent, Edmund Cork. I invented the name. I'm sure it's all nonsense. If this is supposed to have happened in France, I've certainly never stayed in a hostel for students of any kind. When I was with my mother, we always stayed at the Hotel Dienia. And of later years, it's always been hotels round about the Rue de Rivoli and the Dear Bristol. And then this is Janet Morgan that I'm actually getting this information from, Christy Biographer. She adds, Agatha added robustly, Mr. Nicoletis must just be obsessed by having a disagreeable mother. It's terrible that if you invent characters, they should come out so true to life. Positively uncanny. I do kind of love that, actually. I love that, but it's still a very problematic depiction of a Greek person. And I would go really, really low on setting and tone because the readability question, the kind of unknowable quality to the setting and tone category. I mean, here's the thing that I would say is that I do have a sense of the boarding house. Yeah, I think this is one of those cases where the setting does a lot better than the tone. Usually we're giving Christy practically 10 out of 10 for tone because her writing is so effervescent and she's such a joy to read. This is unfortunately not one of those times. Well, so, I mean, um, although I will also say it wasn't hard to read this. You it know, wasn't fun to read it. No, but there have been Christy books that have been way more of a slog to read. Agreed. I think that the bad taste in your mouth is what's affecting this. You know, we gave Destination Unknown a five in setting and tone, and I could certainly give it a five. I mean, regardless of whatever we're taking off on Stuck in Its Time, I don't know if it deserves much more than a five. I could be convinced to go up to a six if you'd really like to. (laughs) Wow. Gee, you put the onus on me. I mean, I think a five or a six is justified because I do think you get a clear setting. And it does have a clear tone, not a tone we might like, but... I'm always in favor of giving credit rather than not, so let's give it a six. I think that on Stuck in His Time deductions, we need to take off a lot because, again, it's such a dramatic way of putting it, but rotten from the inside. We took off seven deductions for The Man in the Brown Suit and six for The Secret of Chimneys. I think this at least deserves that many. So I think seven at minimum. Well, I think you get a deduction for every character it defames. Well, for every character that it does a disservice to, right? Every character it purports to create, but doesn't really live up to that implicit promise in a novel. So I think that's what, it's seven or eight? It's seven or eight. And I just want to be clear, that is not something that we accuse Christie of doing very often. This is an anomaly. But yes, there are actually eight characters who I think have problematic depictions. So I am fully comfortable giving it Eight deductions, which is the highest we've ever done. Why not? All right. So now it is time to tally up the scores here. We have a total of three plus six plus six plus three plus six minus eight for a score of 16 points, putting Hickory Dickory Doc 
in a tie for dead last place with the big four and the secret of chimneys, Catherine, we did not do this on purpose, but I think it makes so much sense that it worked out this way. I feel fairly strongly about putting it just above the big four and the secret of chimneys, even though I think it deserves to be in this lowly company. I don't think that we can abide by how offensive this book is. And that's not to like partake in cancel culture in any way. It's just to say, you know what? This is just not one of the good ones. It's just not working. That is Hickory Dickory Dock, which is now officially in 45th place of 47 books. We're getting close to the big 50, Catherine. I will find it deeply ironic if for some reason, like, Posturn of Fate comes out on top of Hickory Dickory Dock. It very well could happen. There has been no shortage of surprises, I think, in this wacky rankings experiment that we've been doing at both ends of the list and even some in between in and among the middle, so... We shall see. We would love for you to join us in our next episode when we will be covering our next two labors of Hercules. Those would be the Stymphalian Birds and the Cretan Bull. We should also mention that our next novel is another Poirot, Dead Man's Folly, which um, I remember having fond feelings of. So I'm very much looking forward to that. You know, it has Ariadne Oliver. Can't go wrong with Ariadne Oliver. No, you can't. All right. Well, let us know your thoughts as to Hickory Dickory Dock and anything else. We really do love hearing from all of you. You can contact us on our Patreon board and also listen to all of our bonus Patreon content. That is over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha. And our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And please do leave us a rating and or a review if you haven't yet done so. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.